So one of my very favorite poems is this little, you know, 2000 odd year old, uh, tiny, you know, little, little lyric thing, uh, by Catullus. Uh, we, it's numbered as Carmen 11. And you know, so it's a short poem, uh, just a little longer than a, you know, a sonnet maybe. And uh, it's in stanzas, though. I think it's in Sapphix. I, I should look it up, but I am just um, rattling this off in the, the brief moment I have before my uh, wife and daughter get back from a walk. Um, so it's a, a, a little, um, it's a little lyric. It is addressed to Furious and Aurelius, these two ostensible friends. And he, he sort of praises uh, in, in lofty terms to begin the poem. And uh, he says, you know, I, I trust you more than I would trust anyone. And so uh, I, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, I, I, uh, I have something I want you, I have a message I want you to, to give to my ex-girlfriend. And this is where the, the poem has this wonderful pivot. Uh, he, he just, so the second half of the poem is, outrageously filthy, amazingly just foul, cruel, nasty, vicious, uh, and shockingly sexually explicit. But this, it, and it ends on a sort of a, a little, um, uh, a gentler sort of coda, but, but this hinge, this little hinge phrase in the middle of the poem where he goes from uh, this very beneficent uh, warm-up to these two nominal friends uh, as he introduces the message he's about to deliver. Um, his, his, the phrase he has is non bona dicta, to characterize the message that, that will follow. And non bona dicta in Latin, uh, in my, my friend's translation of this poem, I think he, he, he uses the wonderful, simple understatement. Uh, he renders this phrase as, the words are not good. Non bonedicta, the words are not good. The words that I have uh, that I would like you to deliver verbatim to my old girl. So it's, it's this sort of ultra simple statement that is so um, so literal that, it, this, that almost nobody would ever say it in conversation, but it conveys a, 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 um, it conveys a lot of uh, gruesomeness to come. And so, uh, if I have one little phrase, um, one little sentence to um, to characterize what will follow in this week's episode, it would simply be this, non bonedicta, the words are not good. Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. Lately, my older daughter has been into magic, like any healthy, normal seven-year-old. She asked me the other day, are curses real? Uh, my first instinct was to stall <laughs> while I tried to remember the etymology of curse, which I couldn't do uh, for, it turns out, uh, actually pr a pretty good reason uh, being, uh, namely, that, that uh, it doesn't exist. There is no etymology of curse. We don't know. We have some guesses, but we don't really know where it comes from. Um, I did uh, pivot <laughs> quickly. Um, to uh, malediction uh, for evil speech or bad speech, but that was really just a distraction, which she identified quite uh, immediately and, and repeated her question, but our curse is real. So I had to think a little bit. My next response, uh, also a, a, a typical dad response, was to say, it depends on what you mean by curses. 
which it does, but it was also not a very good answer. Uh, and so I, I had to chew a little bit. And, you know, I, I thought, well, I know where her head is, I think, because it's exactly where my head you know, was uh, and would be at that age. Uh, she had been, we just moved from Grimm's Fairy Tales to Hans Christian Andersen's, about which I may have something to say on another date. There's some interesting differences there. Uh, she was reading Goosebumps, uh, the R.L. Stein series. She was watching you know, spooky TV shows and movies. And this is something very much on her mind. I think when I thought about you know mummies and vampires and amulets and purple smoke and uh, you know, radical physical transformations, you know, that that's what she had in mind, I, I was pretty sure. But I wasn't really satisfied with just debunking, partly because I think that, you know, merely debunking interesting things that she reads about is not a very, uh, not, not even, it's not only not very interesting, but it's not, I think, necessarily a great way to teach my kid to think. Um, so I, I stalled, uh, but part of what came to mind while I was stalling was some ex-girlfriends of mine, a number of ex-girlfriends of mine, had related to me that they'd had little conversations that stuck with them. There were things that their mothers had said specifically, in most cases it was mothers. Things their mothers had said, you know, often at a young age, usually in an offhand way about marriage, about men, about love, about uh, their bodies, their own bodies or the bodies of these uh, girls. And this comment or this phrase or this, you know, claim or whatever it was, oh, in that dress, you look like a Christmas tree, stuck, it caught like a hook. And they couldn't shake it. They couldn't get rid of it. And it, it sort of, it had a, a corrosive or a venomous effect over time. It affected how they thought of themselves. It affected how they thought of their bodies. Uh, it wasn't exactly a, a malevolent, you know, assault, but it was a word or a series of words that had caused a harm to them, you know, lasting harm. And that, and of course, it's not just ex-girlfriends and their moms. It was also, I thought of um, things I had said carelessly to them or to other friends of mine or good god to students um little jokes or evaluations or or you know often i think a, a comment about a kind of person a sort of a third a, uh, a, i would i would say something uh carelessly about a group of people a kind of person you know men who don't tuck their shirts in or something stupid like this and unwittingly include my friend in this or include you know the person i was speaking to in this category um or even if i didn't leave a uh leave an impression of something that they wouldn't want to be lest they uh you know lose my favor something like this um and i'm sure i have said and will say plenty more things of this kind to my daughters um to my wife i thought about uh you know, what we call curse words today, uh, words that are bad, ugly, inappropriate for mixed company, which even that phrase is <laughs> a little bit uh, uh, off color today. Um, you know, mostly traditionally, these are just really just the Anglo-Saxon versions of perfectly polite Latinate words. But, you know, those words, fuck shit, piss, etc., um, those aren't really the curse words that we, those words don't operate as curses the way that they used to. There are other words that do, you know, there are slurs and insults that, uh, you know, can cause real harm to people. Um, and just to, in just as real a way, they can cause harm to the speakers, uh, particularly if they're said, on the record, um, similarly, there are you know speeches, a sentence, a tweet, a paragraph, uh, an article that can uh, take a man's career apart, and you know maybe maybe rightly so, uh, in the same way that that his own speeches might, uh, and 
And so when I thought about all of these different ways in which language, words, can cause harm, um, even the, the, you know, the former chair of the department where I got my first MFA um, said, this is, and I have to, <laughs> it's funny. I have enough distance from it that it's, it's actually funny just because it's so fucked up. It's such a fucked up thing to say to a student. <laughs> when I think about my, my own former students or my daughter, it's just, it's, um, wow, it's uh, a work of art. Really, what a prick that guy was. But um, he said, he said, listen, Matthew, in your life, people are going to tell you that you have a gift for narrative. I just want you to know that you don't. Which, as I said, is a really fucked up thing to say to your student. Uh, but even more so because I wasn't studying fiction with him. I wasn't telling stories with him. I was, I was, getting, a, a, <laughs> I was getting a master's in poetry. But, uh, but boy, what he said to me, it stuck with me. And I can't get, you know, it's, it's in there. That's a, it has a kind of a curse-like power to it. So what, you know, what I said to my uh, extremely patient uh, daughter was the thing that I thought curses were when I was your age, that thing does not exist. But curses, you know, words, or strings of words that can, in a moment, by virtue of being spoken, damage a person's life sometimes permanently. Oh, that is really fucking real. Those absolutely exist. And, you know, that was my um, that was my answer minus the uh, fucking. That sent me back to uh, my my initial attempt to stall, which was to to refer to maledictions. Because uh, as we have, you know, language has become incredibly weighty. You know, ca ca seemingly casual speech has become incredibly weighty. And as it has in our, you know, in our public conversations, um, there is a kind of curse, the maledictory sort of curse that has, um, I think we may have lost our appetite for it or at least lost our feel for it. And this is a, a kind of speech that really does affect a change, that is performative in a, you know, in a somewhat meaningful way. Um, and this is, okay. So um, the malediction as I mean it is not um, a magical curse. It's not a, you know, a, an, an implementation of, you know, cancel culture or whatever, however you want to think about that. It's not hate speech. Neither is it a, a presentational or competitive insult uh, like you'd find in, uh, say, the dozens. It's not just your mama. You know, the, the your mama jokes um, are insulting, but they're really just sort of, it's a formula. It's an opportunity to demonstrate wit. You know, the same is true with much of battle rap, right? It's a, it is a, a vehicle, a context, a framework for demonstrating verbal dexterity and wit. Uh, it, it's not maledictory in essence. The malediction I'm thinking of that I want to spend some time today talking about is really uh, the deep and the long and the rich tradition of artfully, cunningly, poignantly saying, fuck you. Shortly after the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center uh, towers and the, the Pentagon, 
The Onion, the satirical newspaper, put out a curious long-form article about the plane hijackers. Uh, and it, the, the, the angle that this article took was the, that of a profile set in hell uh, that, um, you know, that uh, interviewed and the, <laughs> interviewed the hijackers and, and you know, presented their condition as they uh, reoriented themselves, having you know undergone this uh, you know, laborious and horrifying process to 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 perpetrate this enormous crime, all for the sake of entering an eternal paradise, only to to, to find themselves in a, uh, a <laughs> perpetual uh, inferno filled with uh, unimaginable. Uh, tortures and, and horrors. So uh, I, I bring this up not because I think it was necessarily a, an especially good piece or because I think it would date well. That I, I think <laughs> almost certainly think it would not, particularly considering the 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 um, the contrast it highlighted between the um, you know the the seventy two virgins etc. expected by the hijackers and their the um, uh, pretty grisly torments that the staff of the onion dreamed up for them, uh, and, I, and I certainly don't think it reads uh, well in light of everything that came after the September 11th attacks. But I, I think that that piece performed a certain function that is worth our attention and. You know, when I said earlier that I thought we had lost our appetite for malediction, I, I certainly did not mean that we had lost our appetite for saying mean shit to each other. That we have not. We, we uh, have um, uh, an even stronger hunger than ever for uh, brutalizing each other on, in words, especially online. Um, but the, the, the difference, I think, is that we, we do it today with uh, an implicit and sometimes explicit understanding that what we are doing is not just gratifying to us. It is not just that we are uh, insulting our enemies or our opponents. It, the, our understanding is that what we are doing is actually righteous. That we are speaking ill of those others over there, uh, not just because we don't like them or because we happen to find ourselves on opposite ends of some disagreement, but because they are wrong and in fact they deserve it. And it is morally important that we type out these mean tweets. <laughs> uh, and I think that's, in an odd way, it sort of sours the whole, um, the whole experience. Uh, you know, in the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche makes this claim that, you know, one of the major purposes, if not, you know, I think he says even the primary purpose of justice, you know, way back in the day, initially, early on, when, when man was sort of first forming societies, he, he, his claim is that the primary function of justice was not deterrence. It was not, you know, correction of the perpetrator. It was not even restoration of the um, you know, the lost property or the lost life. The uh, what the um, Anglo-Saxons called the Ware Guild, the man price. He says that the actual function of justice was to provide satisfaction to the injured party and satisfaction typically in the form of a cruel and very you know, physical, often permanent violence. Uh, 
so that the you know the the pound of flesh um, the so famous from the the merchant of Venice I think he would say that that is that is justice in its primal form that the the real good of justice is not that it gives you back what you lost and it's not that it keeps other people from doing the bad thing and it's not that it it teaches the the you know the wrongdoer not to do wrong again it's that it gives you the pleasure of inflicting harm on the person who has wronged you and you know, we recoil from that suggestion i think we uh um rightly <laughs> do not um ask that of our justice system today explicitly you know to be clear you know, I think the very last thing we need in this country is a more punitive justice system. Um, <laughs> you know, to the contrary. But I, I think that in denying this impulse, denying this as a natural pleasure, I think we, in some ways, I think it 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 um, it can result in an even crueler response because. Not only do we want that satisfaction, but we, we deny that we want it. And so we continue to pursue it in our justicism, in our uh, you know, discourse. But we, we insist that what we're doing, to go back to that you know, Bill Coyle poem from a few episodes ago, we insist that it's not just that what we're doing is something that we feel an urge to do or a need to do. It's that it's right. You know, it's not just that um, it gives me pleasure to see you punished. It's, the, it's, it's, it's righteous that this should happen. Um, and that's where I think the Onion article really performed a sort of a, an errand of compassion because it didn't, it didn't purport to make a case for the badness of the hijackers. It didn't it didn't purport to you know, threaten revenge against the the masterminds of the attacks. Um, uh, it it really just offered a lyric sort of catharsis for readers. It it allowed Americans to experience in print something that, of course, they they could never and 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 should never experience in real life. And by acknowledging that desire, by acknowledging that it, it did give us some pleasure in imagining torments for these you know, people, uh, I think it actually, it, it is, you know, um, there's the possibility at least that that is a kind of, um, there's a possibility for compassion there. I, I'm, you know, again, I, I'm very, very hesitant to assign um, a, a civic value to art and poetry. But uh, I do think that there is something far more compassionate about acknowledging that, um, that imagining violence, imagining horrible punishment for those who've done you wrong gives you some pleasure. I think there's some value in acknowledging that rather than insisting that no 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 it would be wrong to take pleasure in that but uh, but it is right that this happened it is important that this happened i think there's a real um i think there's something really out of place there you know and and what um i thought of all of this again years after that when uh obama announced that the U.S. had killed Osama bin Laden. You know, there were two responses that I that I noticed, two public responses that I noticed that night, um, both in the you know in my immediate vicinity and uh, on television and the internet. Um, and one was a, uh, a sort of performatively patriotic, performatively you know theatrically patriotic, presentational. Uh, patriotic, uh, you know, uh, cheerleading for the the special forces. This was, um, you know, a, a lot of often young men went out on the street to to cheer 
on SEAL Team 6 and chant USA, USA um, into the night sky. Um, and that response is, is pretty gross, I think. <laughs> it's fair to say. It's not uh, an appealing or admirable response. But the other response that I, um, uh, that I, I, I noted was a also felt, felt, felt very tone deaf. It was a, a sort of finger wagging insistence that one should never celebrate the death of a man, that it would be, it's unthinkable that we should be express pleasure at the, the death of this, this human being. Um, I, you know, I, I hesitate to celebrate anybody's death, especially, you know, from, especially a killing as this was, but it's, uh, it's crazy. It's, Bananas who suggest that, that you can't understand why people felt some relief or some satisfaction when uh, bin Laden was killed. It's crazy. You know, this is a man whose name was known. The overwhelming majority of Americans learned this man's name in the same sentence in which they learned that he had murdered 3,000 Americans. This was the um, the only knowledge most Americans had of this man was that he was someone that they should wish dead. So of course, of course, there was a, a an expression of a, a sort of a sigh of relief, if nothing else. But again, you know the 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 hooting uh, Harvard jocks on the on the lawn uh, the, that that's. Ugh, you know, that feels equally um, out of step. It wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, for several more years after that that I, I read the Odes of Horace. But when I did, I, you know, I got to, uh, it was Ode 137. It's book one, uh, Ode 37. And on reading it, I immediately thought back both to that night of um, bin Laden's uh, death and to uh, that onion piece, you know, years before that. And that's because uh, Horace wrote this poem 2,000 odd years ago, uh, not, you know, not, not uh, long after Catullus was writing his poems. Um, Horace wrote this poem on the occasion of the death of an infamous, widely hated enemy of the state of Rome, uh, who after you know, various betrayals and humiliations had finally, at long last, been vanquished by the Roman military and uh, there was a great, um, a great public expression of, uh, pleasure at this death. And the, the, um, the enemy of the state that I, I'm speaking of, of course, is Cleopatra. I'll, I'll just read you the poem, um, as I read it. Uh, this is in David Ferry's, um, wonderful translation. He did a the whole book of the Odes, and it is uh, it's one of my very favorite books. It's a book I come back to again and again and again, The Odes of Horace, translated by David Ferry. But this is um, Ode 137, which he just titles Cleopatra. At last the day has come for celebration, for dancing, and for drinking, bringing out the couches with their images of gods adorned in preparation for the feast. Before today, it would have been wrong to call for the festive Kaikuban wine from the vintage bins. It would have been wrong while that besotted queen, with her vile gang of sick, polluted creatures, crazed with hope and drunk with her past successes, was planning the death and destruction of the empire. But, comrades, she came to and sobered up when not one ship almost of all her fleet escaped unburned. 
And Caesar saw to it that she was restored from madness to a state of realistic terror. The way a hawk chases a frightened dove, or as a hunter chases a hare across the snowy steppes. His galleys chased this fleeing queen, intending to put the monster prodigy into chains and bring her back to Rome. But she desired a nobler fate than that. She did not seek to hide her remnant fleet in a secret harbor, nor did she, like a woman, quail with fear at the thought of what it is the dagger does. She grew more fierce as she beheld her death. Bravely, as if unmoved, she looked upon the ruins of her palace, bravely reached out and touched the poison snakes and picked them up and handled them and held them to her so her heart might drink its fill of their black venom. In truth, no abject woman she, she scorned in triumph to be brought in galleys unqueened across the seas to Rome to be a show. Horace is a, um, a, uh, is a master of the malediction, and that's a, that, that is a famous one because of its remarkable turn from really uh, egging on the crowd in their hatred of Cleopatra to this strange sort of eulogy for her. You know, the, the Roman vision of war and of uh, social order is, is pretty misogynistic, and, you know, it was... It was especially galling to them to be defied by a, a female monarch, um, and it would have been very gratifying to them to do what they liked to do with the, the rulers, rulers of their defeated enemies, which was to put them in chains and to march them through the city in a triumph. Uh, and she knew that, at least in Horace's um, version, and you know he he more than once. <laughs> says that she was unwomanly. She was. She did not behave like a woman. Uh, he's praising her in a very Roman way. Um, and in fact, when she sees that she could not live, you know, freely or with, on the terms of, you know, of her own choosing, she made an extremely Roman choice. You know, she's very much like Cato in this moment um, and uh, commits suicide um, on her own conditions and her own way, with you know that that you know, final badge of Roman honor, uh, which is the forward-facing wounds on her chest, not on her back. Uh, so it's a. Um, I think though it would be simplistic to suggest that the whole poem is just a bait and switch. It would be simplistic to suggest that you know this is a poem that reels you in by thinking that it's. It's really, um, uh, it's for the, you know, the hooting dudes on the lawn chanting USA when really it's observing Riley that, you know, Cleopatra was a formidable and, and honorable enemy. I think it is, um, it's doing both things at the same time. I think, you know, when he, when he acknowledges the, the Roman need to celebrate this victory, I don't think he's doing it um, sarcastically. I think that's very real. But I think, you know, being the, um, the poet he was, and also being the loser that he was, you know, because Horace, who was the son of a, um, a freed slave, uh, as, as a young man, he joined the army of Brutus which, you know, turned out to be a bad bet uh, and, and uh, fought poorly in war, not very honorably. And he, according to his own account, he basically turned tail and dropped his shield and ran. Uh, but the army of Brutus was defeated. And as a result of his uh, joining up, not only you know, was all of his property confiscated, but all of his father's, all of his family's property was confiscated by the state um, as, a, as a punishment. 
So he knew what it was like to be, you know, on the losing side of the, you know, the Roman legion. Um, so I think both, both impulses, both feelings are true. And because it is a lyric poem, because it's a poem that's really um, capturing and conveying a feeling rather than making a sort of a political or moral argument, there isn't really a contradiction. Both of those feelings are true. And the same thing happens in one of his other um, famous maledictions, uh, cursing very comically the, the man who planted the tree that fell down and nearly brained him out on his farm. Uh, and he, he curses very athletically, this man. Um, but then he imagines himself descending into the underworld. And there in the underworld, he imagines all of the torments of the dead and Tartarus growing still for a moment as all of the, the shades listen to the deathless songs of uh, uh, Sappho. And... Um, Alcaeus, Sappho and Alcaeus in the underworld. So there's, you know, it, it's not that, uh, again, it's, it's not a bait and switch. It's that both of those seemingly um, conflicting feelings are true at once. That, that this is um, uh, a, a genuine expression of ambivalence. Uh, so I, um, the structure of this episode is a little bit fucked up this week. <laughs> For which I apologize, um, partly because uh, I, I um, so I recorded some uh, weeks ago a an interview. It was meant to be a um, uh, an episode, uh, but there was a there's a little bit of a um, snafu, and uh, I had to shelve that for now at least. I'm, and I'm, while I'm putting this episode together, I'm also preparing uh, another interview, which I, 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 you know, fingers crossed should be coming out soon enough for you. Uh, but I'm, I'm doubling up so that I don't, I don't get caught flat-footed again. Um, so I, I, I would like, I would rather have too much material um, uh, in the can than not enough. So. Uh, I'm a little bit disorganized this week, but there, there, there's so much, um, there's so much good maledictory material, uh, and not nearly enough time. Um, if I were, uh, if this were a higher effort, higher quality podcast, I might, you know, give a, a more in-depth treatment of, you know, pop cultural maledictions, like say, uh, you know, Ben Fold's song for the dumped or, you know, I mean, really, if you, if you want the, 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 the sweet spot of the malediction is the breakup song. Um, you know, Catullus is not the only one. Uh, um, CeeLo Green had a, had a, <laughs> a song that was, I think the, the non-radio edit was just called Fuck You, <laughs> um, maybe 10 years ago. The, the, about the Catullus poem, by the way, I the reason I am not reading it on air <laughs> uh, is, you know, I had a conversation with um, Ryan uh, Wilson, who translated it, um, and he has not published that translation. I think partly for the, the reason that he, he said uh, today over the phone, he said, you know, I, uh, I wouldn't want to be blamed for Catullus, which is maybe understandable. It is a... Um, as I said, it is pretty strong medicine, but uh, maybe someday uh, uh, if, uh, if this podcast survives and I uh, start a Patreon, maybe, maybe someday I'll do a recording and a discussion of it for, for that, <laughs> but not uh, tonight. Um, tonight. I will, though, I will read another malediction that Ryan actually sent me that I had never heard of that I think is quite good, um, Another Breakup. Uh, malediction. This is um, Heather McHugh. Uh, and this is um, this is the, the only version that he or I could find online is from um, a collection that's just called Poems 1968 to 1993. Um, so I'm not sure if it uh, originally appeared in a magazine before that, but uh, this is called Earth Moving Malediction. I'm going to read this and it's maybe say a word or two and then 
um, I have a little closing segment that I think will be fun. Um, so this is uh, Earth Moving Malediction by Heather McHugh. Bulldoze the bed where we made love. Bulldoze the goddamn room. Let rubble be our evidence and wreck our home. I can't give touching up by inches. Can't give beating up by heart. So set the comforter on fire and turn the dirt to some advantage. Palaces of pigweed, treasuries of turd. The fist will vindicate the hand. The tooth and nail refuse to burn. And I must not look back as Mrs. Lot was named for such a little something in a cemetery or a man. Bulldoze the coupled ploys away, the cute exclusives in the social mall. We dwell on earth where beds are brown, where swoops are fell. Bulldoze it all up to the pearly gates. If paradise comes down, there is no other hell. So, <laughs> uh, in some ways, it's sort of a straightforward poem. Um, it is a, uh, uh, a you know, like the Fenton Johnson poem I read, I think, in episode three, like the Funeral Blues, like Evermatics's Anonymous. It's a, um, a uh, you know, pluck the stars out of the heaven, you know, burn the burn the whole thing down. Um, uh, sort of a uh, a um, a book of revelation <laughs> uh, uh, vision of the end of a marriage, uh, you know some little nice touches. I think it it kind of plays with uh, a you know the quatrain form. Um, that's how the poem is set up on the on the page until you get to uh, the antepenultimate and penultimate um, stanzas are, are in uh, tercets and then the. The last one is in uh, is just two lines together. Um, it's not really a couplet because it doesn't rhyme. But um, initially, it's it's uh, quatrains and there's sort of a gesture of, of rhyme and meter, but um, it, it you know swiftly breaks down. And the the poem is um, sort of two things that keep coming up in the poem. I think uh, are um, uh, the received phrases, you know, the beating of the heart. Uh, tooth and nail, the fell swoop, the pearly gates. So I think there, there are a number of kind of received phrases or received language, and then it tends to get jumbled up and put out of order. The line breaks are very severe in the poem. Uh, and um, as in the, you know, the sentence, I can't give touching up by inches, can't give beating up by heart. Uh, depending on where you pause, you know, the, the, the whole sense of that line can be hard to follow because she's taking these uh, received manners of speaking and jumbling them. Um, every, you can see, you know, the, the whole life almost and the language of a, you know, the, the quotidian language of daily life shared with somebody over years together, just getting crushed and piled up as a, you know, as a, um, the heap of shit at the front end of a bulldozer does. So that's, um, uh, that is how I uh, experience it. And, you know, again, mostly it's just driven by um, anger. But I think, you know, it's there is plenty of venom and resentment. But, you know, it, it really, it's a poem of a heartbreak. It's certainly very angry. <laughs> and, um, it doesn't the you know the the um, the offstage man in it doesn't say come off very well, but again the the point of this poem is not to attack right it's to vent. It's to give voice to an experience, this experience of wanting your fucking satisfaction and not being able to get it, um, and uh, and being willing to. to uh, bring the heavens down on your own head um, uh, just for spite because you were so furious and hopeless and sad, um, which is uh, 
based on all of my um, secondhand experience of divorce, uh, pretty, um, pretty on the nose. So there's um, there uh, there's another poem. I don't know if I really have time. Uh, um, so Yeats has this famous poem, No Second Troy, which is uh, uh, directed to Maud, uh, Maud Gunn, um, uh, whom he obsessed over and, uh, and uh, wrote many poems about uh, for you know, decades and decades. Um, and he, he writes this poem, No Second Troy, Why Should I Blame Her, That She Filled My Days With Misery, or that she would have late have taught to ignorant men most violent ways, or hurled the little streets upon the great. He he, um, uh, in a, in a uh, barely concealed sneer, asks sort of semi rhetorical questions about this woman, whom he compares finally to Helen of Troy, um, she, both because she was very beautiful and because her. Um, her self-indulgence in his mind, uh, you know, would have destroyed a state. Um, he had he had a lot of ambivalence about the um, the fight for Irish independence uh, before, during, and after. Um, but she, I think, had a less complicated view of it, um, at least as as depicted in his poems. But um, I, I mention that one mostly because there's another poem uh, written much more recently um that uh it was by by um a uh, a sort of a, a former teacher and a friend mary jo salter um she wrote this poem no second try uh after her own divorce um so i think it was published originally in subtropics and then she um, it was reprinted in her collection in 2013 called nothing by design uh, but it's um, it's not just a it's not just a sort of uh, you know Anthony Hecht has the Dover bitch as a response to Dover Beach, which is which is a best kind of a smirky joke. Um, I think uh, I think Mary Jo Salter's No Second Try is, is a little bit more than that, and I, and I even think that it uses the parodic conceit um, advisedly. So I'll quickly read that I, um, because again, we're, you know, I'm, uh, I, I am going to run out of time, but it's just it's too good to ignore entirely. Um, uh, partly, and, and I, I don't have time to go through it all, but she um, preserves throughout. Uh, she doesn't preserve all of the end words of the original No Second Troy, but she preserves the end rhyme, the end the rhyme sounds of the original. Uh, perfectly from start to finish. So it's written, it's an extremely close parody of Yeats' sonnet. This is No Second Try by Mary Jo Salter. Why should I blame him that he filled his days with mistresses, or that he came home late to meet most ignorant trust with smiling ways? Such thoughtful gifts and claims that I looked great, whatever that meant, though clearly not desire, what help if I'd been wiser with a mind simply to hurl his laundry in the fire, rather than buy his tall tales with a kind solicitude and a deluded kiss, having cleaned his house from stem to stern? Why, who else could he use a guy like this? Was there another wife for him to spurn? Now, uh, you know, the famous last line of Yeats's poem, No Second Troy, is... Um, uh, uh, the last few lines are, you know, why, what could she have done being what she is? Was there another Troy for her to burn? Um, this is, uh, you know, the, completing his, his um, comparison of Maud Gunn to Helen. And here I think um, Mary Jo does something uh, different. You know, she's, she's taking up this, um, this, you know, famous celebrated, uh, Yeats poem that uses this classical conceit, this epic, this high epic classical conceit, um, and she uh, copies it very closely. Um, it, it's worth noting that her you know, former husband was himself a celebrated poet. So I think it's not um, accidental that there is a kind of a 
deflating effect in imitating Yates here. That whereas, you know, Maud Gunn being uh, Helen, um, you know, effectively Helen, you know, suffered for, you know, not having another Troy to burn. And so she had to destroy, you know, Yates's life and the lives of all these others around her. Um, whereas in, in Mary Jo's poem, No Second Try, the, the stakes drop drastically. You know, it almost feels like a mock epic. You think of um, Thomas Gray's kitten drowning in the fishbowl, you know, where it's not that there's no, there's no Troy to burn. In this case, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a question of, uh, laundry and and um uh tall tales it's it's everything is much punier as much smaller uh, is much less inspiring and i think um and you know i don't know but i i can't help but read in this poem about a man's uh lies and adultery i can't help but read in her choice to um uh <laughs> in her choice of malediction for a poet to write a sort of mock epic parody, a copy, which is to say the whole story, the whole shtick, the whole uh, cheating man lies to wife routine is, of course, a big fucking cliche. It has been done before. And there is nothing new or interesting about it. So being, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a tiny and as I said, really ingeniously constructed little uh, parody poem, but I think that the very deflation that one feels in, you know, the echo of, you know, Yeats' poem reduced to, was there another wife for him to spurn? I think that very deflation is in fact the sort of the poem's uh, parting uh, go fuck yourself to the, to the ex-husband. Um, I'm going to uh, break off there because I do... Um, there's there's one last uh, malediction I want to share, um, and I'll I'll get to that after a break. But again, uh, there's a lot to. I think I may end up doing another episode at some point about maledictions because there's just so much to talk about. But uh, it is very late. Um, I have a whole other fucking episode to put together <laughs> this week, and and I still have, as I said, one more. And this is this is worth sticking around for. There's a this is a this is a reason I'm going to close with this one. So just hold on tight. At some point in high school, I I learned um, a you know intro to bio level explanation of the 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 way that neurons function. And I liked it so much that I have since uh, refused to improve uh, my, my understanding of the subject just because I think it's such a handy analogy. Um, so as I, as I understood it in high school, <laughs> um, neurons, uh, nerve cells, that is, uh, sit at, they, at separated from one another um, by these little gaps. Uh, these gaps are called synapses. Uh, but there's, you know, the, the synapse is a place where there is no nerve cell. And so something curious has to happen in order for one nerve cell to convey a message to another nerve cell. Now, the message these nerve cells convey is um, a, an electrical pulse. You know, and a pulse will travel from one nerve cell to another, to another, to another, to another, to another. Um, and it travels by way of these arms that extend from the nucleus of the cell. And these arms are called axons and dendrites. And the, the gap, the synapse, occurs between the end of an axon and the beginning of a dendrite. There's this void. And of course, because the electricity needs some kind of um, conductor to pass, you know, across that void and, and there's nothing there to serve, um, the electrical pulse actually stops at the end of the axon. And uh, instead of electricity, the, the little arm of the nerve cell releases this little packet of chemicals 
we call neurotransmitters, um, one kind or another. And neurotransmitters pass across this little gap, the synapse, and they land on the other side and the dendrite receives them. And in response, it sends an electrical pulse on. And so the electrical pulse actually does not travel from neuron to neuron. It's, it's a different electrical pulse. You know, I guess you could say in one, in one sense. And instead, the neurotransmitters make the next nerve cell respond to the one before in such a way as to recreate that electrical pulse, so to speak. Now, as I said, that is a uh, you know, freshman year of high school level understanding of how neurons work. And I, uh, I, I certainly don't, <laughs> I certainly don't encourage you to apply that, uh, th that account anywhere beyond this podcast. But what I like about it so much, what I like about it so much is that that synapse, the gap between neurons is not so much unlike the gap between one mind and another. You know, there is no direct conductor that travels from one of our minds to another mind. And so we need neurotransmitters. We need something that is not itself the charge. It does not carry the electrical charge, but what it does is it, it provokes the charge so that in the next mind, the same pulse can appear that was in the originating mind, even though between those two minds, there's this void where no electricity is conducted. And, you know, I think fairly obviously what I'm talking about here when I talk about neurotransmitters is not just words generally, but specifically the lyric. Right? And, and I guess I use lyric in a, both a more specialized and a more general sense. But I, I really mean, you know, a poem whose job it is to bring about in a reader's mind a feeling that originated in the writer's mind. And um, the poem I've saved for last this week, I think is a really good neurotransmitter, <laughs> to put it nerdily. Um, this is, uh, this poem is called To Whoever Set My Truck on Fire. It's by Steve Scafidi. It um, uh, was collected in his book, Sparks from a Nine Pound Hammer, which came out, um, I think, originally 94, maybe, that's right. So um, I, I'm going to say a few things before reading it, because this is, uh, this is a little longer than than most of the poems I tend to read, and so I'll probably just read it the once. Um, uh, this is a poem written in uh, a, a somewhat rhythmic, but, but basically free verse, the, the um, long, more or less unbroken uh, stream of thought is, uh, is separated into five line semi stanzas, I guess you could say. Um, there is a pretty insistent anapestic foot to this poem, which uh, you know we, we tend to associate with lullabies, uh, sort of soporific music, um, and there is a dreamy, oddly soothing quality to the cadence of this poem, um, which I think Steve Scavidi uses to good effect. Um, we talked already this week about maledictions turning from one perspective to another. This one has, uh, I think, a not a not entirely unforeseeable turn to it, but it's not a simple turn. And I think one of the, the very nice tricks that he pulls along the way in order to in order to stir in us some of the feeling that presumably inspired the poem is that he takes some time to make fun of himself. He really takes some time to allow us to see, to see him at a distance in this sort of clownish, pitiful predicament uh, so that we can get a taste not just of uh, how angry the, you know, the, the original offense of the truck made him feel, but 
but also how humiliating it was for him. He lets us see him as a, uh, a comic figure um, in the midst of all this. I think that, that adds a little extra, that, that adds a little extra bite to the, um, to the long uh, and tantalizing warm-up that leads to this poem's final delicious payoff. Um, I, won't, I won't say a whole lot else um, except to say that he is very much following in um, Horace's uh, footsteps with his uh, sort of winding malediction and uh, that though I'm really skeptical of biographical readings of poems, I, I, I try as much as possible to stay away from that and uh, to try to take the poem on its own terms. I'll say just because I don't have to be responsible here because this is just a fucking podcast that it's just a little bit more satisfying when you read this poem to know that yes, Steve Scafidi did have a truck and yes, somebody did set it on fire and no, the arsonist was never caught. With all, with, with all that in mind then, this is To Whoever Set My Truck on Fire by Steve Scafidi. But let us be friends a while and understand our differences are small and that they float like dust in sunny rooms. And let us settle into the good work of being strangers, simply who have something to say in the middle of the night. For you have said something that interests me. Something of flames, footsteps, and the hard, heavy charge of an engine gunning away into the June cool of four in the morning here in West Virginia, where, last night, I woke to the sound of a door slamming, five or six fading footsteps, and through the window saw my impossible truck, bright orange like a maverick sun, and ran, I did, panicked in my underwear, bobbling the dumb extinguisher, too complex it seemed, for putting out fires, and so grabbed a skillet, and jumped about like one needing to piss, while the faucet, like honey, issued its slow, sweet water, and you, I noticed, were watching from your idling car. Far enough away, I could not make your plate number, but you could see me, half-naked, figuring out the puzzle of a fire, 30 seconds from a dream never to be remembered, while the local chaos of a growing fire crackled through the books and boots burning in my truck. You bastard, you watched as I sprayed finally the flames with a garden hose under the moon, and yes, I cut what was surely a ridiculous figure there, and worsened it later that morning after the bored police drove home lazily, and I stalked the road in front of my house with an axe in my hand, and walked into the road after every car to memorize the plates of who might have done this. LB7329, NT7663, and you may have passed by. I don't know. You may have passed by as I committed the innocent numbers of neighbors to memory, and maybe you were miles away, and I, like the woodsman of fairy tales, threatened all with my bright axe shining with the evil joy of vengeance and mad hunger to bring harm, heavy harm, to the coward who did this, and if I find you, my friend, I promise you, I will lay the sharp blade deep into your body until the humid grabbing hands of what must be death have mercy and take you away from the constant murderous swinging my mind makes my words make swinging down on your body and may your children weep a thousand tears at your small and bewildered grave uh, and the poem ends with the uh, the first and only period Scafidi uses in this one I really enjoy this poem. Uh, there's some, you know, there's some nice little uh, sort of expressionist touches, the, the water dripping like slow honey um, from the faucet, uh, the, the bored police driving home lazily. Um, and the, uh, it's, a, it's such a 
sadistic and yet fitting um, uh, conclusion. Those those children weeping <laughs> at their uh, parents' uh, bewildered grave. Uh, so, uh, you know, this like so much of what we talked about today is a is a furious and vicious poem, but um, I think because it's so specific and, uh, and because of the um, the both horrifying and comical occasion of its composition um, and just the wonderful momentum he builds up over the course of this slow, satisfying curve, uh, this is a this is a keeper. This is one I've come back to. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna end here for today. Uh, that was to whoever set my truck on fire by Steve Scafidi, um, and this is Slee Ricketts. Um, thank you for listening. Please do uh, take a moment to subscribe if you like what you hear. Uh, give give the show a rating or review on iTunes. That um, always helps. Um, or just recommend it to a friend if you think you know somebody who might like it. Um, I did, by the way, since I last recorded earlier, uh, the section you, you heard just moments before, um, I, I did go ahead and record the interview that I mentioned. I think it went well, and I'm going to have a really good, I think, fun episode with a special guest coming up for you very, very soon. Till then. Ha, 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 ha.